the day. Amen. You may be seated. Brother Scott. Good evening. As uh, you're getting settled in, if you would uh, go ahead and turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 55, and I'll get there in a moment, but uh, I don't know if any of you noticed on Sunday when Pastor was making announcements, he noted that Brother Osteen was going to be here this Sunday, and he didn't announce who was going to be here tonight. I thank him. Uh, I think he was afraid I was going to be uh, speaking to an empty church, but uh, anyway, uh, we're here. Uh, so I was... As a background for uh, the passage we're going to be looking at uh, tonight, uh, uh, as you're turning there, this will try to help set the tone for these verses. Uh, the book of uh, Isaiah itself is one of the most amazing uh, books that we have in the Bible, both for Christian and Jew alike. Among other things, the book starts out with an urgent call to repentance for that nation. Uh, it, it sets some of their history and things like that in motion and goes for this call of repentance and a warning about the uh, potential for the Babylonian captivity before it's become inevitable. And uh, Isaiah goes through those details through the first 39 chapters. And then uh, he goes on and he tells about the eventual restoration of the nation after that captivity ends. And he goes on to describe life in the millennial kingdom. Uh, this book contains some of the best descriptions found in the Old Testament of the promised Savior, the Messiah that the Jews are looking for. Uh, chapters 40 through 48, uh, God is comforting them. Remember the first 39 chapters were warning of the uh, impending captivity and calling them to repentance. Well, in chapters 40 to 48, God comforts Israel with a promise of restoration, says that's not going to be your end. Uh, chapter 45, he goes on to detail the part that a Persian king by the name of Cyrus is going to have in that restoration, some 150 years before Cyrus is even born. Then in chapter 47, he foretells the fall of Babylon, which at the time of Isaiah's writing is a second-rate world, uh, a second-rate power when compared to the Assyrian Empire, which is actively at that time taking the northern kingdom into captivity. And uh, so Isaiah's got all these prophecies out there that have been held out and uh, continue on. He finishes out in chapter 66 of Isaiah, and he uh, reveals that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. The same stuff we see in uh, Revelation where uh, Isaiah 66, 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Again, he's trying to comfort this nation that's getting ready to go into this captivity. Chapter 52 of Isaiah starts to describe God's servant, the promised Savior, that Messiah that they look for. And it also goes on to talk about the work that he's going to be accomplishing by the sprinkling of many nations, uh, as Isaiah puts it. That description continues into chapter 53, which is where we're introduced to the Savior's rejection. We're introduced to the suffering that He's going to endure for our benefit and up to and including the death of that Savior. Then chapter 54, He switches back over to that millennial kingdom, the description of what life is going to be like in the future. And uh, we'll go ahead and uh, open up in prayer and we'll... Uh, 
continue on with this. Heavenly Father, as we uh, begin this, I pray that you would uh, let your words speak out, not mine, that uh, this message would be one that's uh, fruitful for you and uh, reaches uh, our hearts and minds and reminds us where we are as we uh, look around this world and see some of the changes that are going on, Lord, there's uncertainty out there. But uh, as our memory verse says, there's no variableness nor shadow of turning with you. There's no uncertainty in the case of uh, your world, Lord. And I pray that uh, we would be able to stand firm in that truth and uh, glorify for you for this. And uh, bless this message in the study now. I ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so as Isaiah's uh, getting into chapter uh, 55, uh, the last thing he'd gone through, of course, was chapter 54, and he had just declared that the, what the Lord would do for the nation of Israel during that millennial kingdom. And now, uh, and, and noted how he was going to protect that nation. Isaiah 54, verses 14 to 17 says, In righteousness shalt thou be established. Speaking of the nation of Israel, uh, thou shalt be far from oppression, from thou, uh, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work. I have created the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. It's promises like that that are going through the heads of folks like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all these that are going up and they're standing against Christ when he's uh, teaching on his, during his earthly ministry. And they're fighting so hard against this because in their eyes, they're picturing this Messiah, this Savior that's going to be doing these things described in chapter 54. And Christ is not that warrior Savior that they're looking for. He's not come to overthrow the Romans and, and kick them out as a warrior. So there's that pushback. But that day, that, that day where Christ is there with the Pharisees and stuff, that's somewhere off in the future when this is being written. For now, the people of Israel, uh, the nation of Judah, are worried about the invasion from Assyria or perhaps one by this country, Babylon, that uh, Isaiah has uh, been speaking about. Isaiah's present audience longs for a rest from the war that they're going through. They're no doubt dreaming of what it's going to be like in that millennial kingdom that he's just described in chapter 54. I mean, this is what they want, relief from the war that's going on around them when Isaiah calls out to bring them back to the present. So chapter 55, verse 1 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come with... Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is like when we see a, a, a speaker or a teacher somewhere out there and he's clapping to get your attention and things like that. I've had professors in school that'll stomp their foot to uh, make sure that you're realizing, hey, get this part because it's going to be on the test. 
Well, that's basically what Isaiah is doing when he calls out, Ho! and uh, starts this off. He wants their full attention. Before delivering an, uh, a tidbit or an, an information, God realizes that this immediate audience that's hearing the spoken word of Isaiah is not going to be part of that kingdom that Isaiah just described unless they get the message. Um, and it's important that they and we, likewise, give full attention to this part of his message. After regaining their attention, Isaiah instructs them saying, if you want to be a part of the millennium, that, that group that I just described, then you're going to have to come to the water. He's saying it's going to take some action on your part. This is not something that automatic, automatically happens simply because you're born into the line of Abraham. It's not going to work. It's going to take some action. That same truth holds true today. Being born and uh, raised in a Christian family does not make us God's child. We must first believe and come to Him by faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. It's going to take action on our part. Only by coming to Christ in faith and accepting His sacrificial gift can we be part of that kingdom that Isaiah has been describing here to him. Notice too that this is available to everyone, everyone that is thirsty. There are no exceptions, there's no prerequisites laid out there. This is the message uh, or this part of the message that there's, there's no exceptions out there we see repeated in the New Testament. In John 7 37 uh, it's, the Bible says, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And again in Revelation 22, verse 17 says, And let them that heareth say, Come, and let him that athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That last passage makes it abundantly clear that this applies to whosoever will, which simply means anybody that has a want or a desire to partake of that kingdom that Isaiah has described to them, there's an opportunity. While the immediate audience, these pre-captivity Jews, did not have these New Testament references that we just went through that make it so clear that Isaiah is saying, come to Jesus, uh, they do get the fact that the reference is to the Messiah or the Savior from God, for them, this is a reminder of the rocket Meribah uh, that we saw in Exodus chapter 17 and God's provision of water there in the wilderness where they're, they're dying of thirst and they're crying out, God provides. Psalm 187 uh, in verse 7 remembers that event there at Meribah where the Bible says, Thou calledest in trouble and I delivered thee. I answered thee in the secret place of thunder. I proved thee at the waters of Meribah. It goes on in verse 10 to say, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. Trust me, they get the picture of what he's talking about. The part in the, the verse that talks about having no money and buying reminds us that our Savior is the one who paid it all. And our entry into heaven does not hinge on any good work that we've done, 
or that we do to earn our entry. It's not going to be there. Christ paid the, uh, the price. There is not a one of us that deserves to spend an eternity at the side of uh, God in heaven. Yet God says, come. And next, notice that uh, the call was to those that thirst to come to the water. So you think, hey, let's go get a drink of water. But it doesn't end there because God wants the best for us. In fact, the phrase, buy wine and milk that's in there in the verse, paints a picture of having the best of the land. We need to keep in mind when we go through and we study the Bible that the Hebrew language is a picturesque language. It puts words out there that, that have uh, thoughts and meanings out there. When we see somebody's name, it has a, a picture associated with it. So it's, it's that picturesque language in there. And in painting this picture, uh, that phrase, buy wine and milk, paints the picture of the best of the land. Uh, the word wine here is translated as banqueting. Uh, hey, you know, there's, there's wine, but hey, we can go to a banquet. That's a lot more than just uh, something to drink. The Song of Solomon uh, uses it that way. When uh, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. The word milk has the connotation of the, abund the abundance of the land. So when we're putting these together, God says, come to the water. You're getting more than that. Uh, when you put these together, he's calling those who can't afford to live like kings to partake in a, of a king's bounty. Describing kingdom life in verse 12 of chapter 54, God had said that he would make the windows of agates and the gates of carbuncles and all thy borders of pleasant stones. That basically he's saying, you're going to live like kings. That's hard for us to imagine uh, if we don't live that way today. But let me try to help you out a little bit. In the 1880s, uh, there was a woman by the name of Sarah Winchester. She inherited her husband's fortune. The name may sound familiar. He was the Winchester of Winchester Repeating Arms. And uh, after he passed, she was working on her house. And you can bring up the picture of it. But at that time, she paid $1,500 for a single glass window. In today's dollars, that would be $40,000 for one window in your house. It's not a very big window. Pretty extravagant. That window, as pretty as it is, it was still made of glass. The Bible says in heaven, our windows will be made from precious stones, not glass. Better yet, we will not need money to buy the windows. So, you can get rid of it. So after painting such a wonderful picture of God's provision, Isaiah then goes on to ask the audience a pointed question. Verse 2. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. In verse 2, Isaiah is taking or is going to the point of contrasting what will be in that day in heaven to the day-to-day -day reality that they're living in. They're in a time of war and things like that. They're going about their daily lives. He's asking, why waste your money and your time chasing worthless junk on things that don't even satisfy? 
isn't that like society today? We're chasing after stuff that really doesn't bring any satisfaction. It's been said that uh, the two best days in a boat owner's life are the day they get it and the day they get rid of it. Because when they're getting it, before they get it, they have these visions of just how many days they're going to spend on the lake and how good they're going to be at water skiing or fishing. And they've got all these dreams. And between the first day and the last day, reality sets in. They're not getting a whole lot of satisfaction. They realize I got to do maintenance on it. I got to pay insurance. I got to do storage. I got to prep it for the winter. I, it, and it goes on. It doesn't satisfy. Okay, you think I'm picking on boat owners. Anybody got an iPhone 12? Bad news, in less than a month, the 13s are going to be out. Okay. In the second part of verse 2, he urges them to hearken diligently. The actual word used in Hebrew for hearken and the word used for diligently are just very slight variations of the same base word. A picturesque language, two words, it's basically the same word repeated one after another. Today, it would be like somebody saying, listen, listen, I tell you. So uh, that's what it's going into. And it says, again, Isaiah is getting the audience to focus on what he's saying. This is an important point, and he doesn't want them to miss it. For too many years, Israel had known who God was, but not obeyed as if they did. Isaiah is trying to get them to focus on God's instructions so that they can get saved and have this bountiful life that God is promising at no cost to them. This is only possible because Christ bore the cost in His own sacrifice. The last part of verse 2 says, Let your soul delight itself in fatness. Isaiah is expanding the picture out for him. Uh, the fatness that he's speaking of here is a picture of the fat going into the sacrifice. The same word can be used for ashes. And again, it pictures that sacrifice, that sacrificial offering. God had commanded that the fat be burned with fire as part of any sacrifice and that it was reserved for God back in, in, uh, back in Leviticus 3.16 the Bible says, And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. In our English translation, we miss it, but the word commonly translated as fat in the Old Testament, the Hebrew deshen, can be just as freely translated as best, finest, or fatness. In fact, it is over 10% of the time. We just don't make the connection that these words are all the same word because we don't always study in the original language. The point here is that by coming to the waters, that is coming to the Messiah, we are no longer prohibited from partaking of that which was reserved for God in the Old Testament uh, through the sacrifices. This is because be by coming to the Savior, we are permanently changed. We become the adopted sons of God. John 1.12 says, But if any man receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Hallelujah. The sons of God. 
as sons of God, we are now legal to partake of that which had been reserved for God himself there in the Old Testament. Just as the sons of the priest were permitted to eat of the breast of the uh, peace offering, Leviticus uh, 7 verse 31 says, And the priest shall burn the fat upon the altar, that's God's part, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his sons. Isaiah uh, goes on in verse 3 and says, Incline your ear, come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercy, mercies of David. Incline your ear. Saying, hey, you know, get your attention again. The word for incline is often translated as stretch out, turn, turning aside, and pitch. You know, like when you pitch a tent, it's going to say, hey, listen up, stay a while. Today we might come to somebody and say, hey, have a seat and stay a while. We need to spend some time together. And that's the words that uh, Isaiah is using here. This becomes clearer still as he continues and he says, come unto me. The word come, of course, is a verb. It's an action word. It implies that the hearer needs to take some action on their part to set things aside long enough for them to receive that message that's being delivered. The problem is, even today, we get so busy in the things of life, we just want to push everything else aside. We don't want anybody getting in our way. Hey, this is my little bit of time and I don't want to listen, especially if somebody comes to talk to us about God and salvation and things like that. I don't have time for it. Yeah, yeah, thanks, bye. Um, but ignoring God is utter foolishness because when we do so, we don't hear the message of love that he's trying to put out there. And that's his next command here in our verse. Hear and then your soul shall live. Without Christ, we are empty, dead husks walking around without hope. In Christ, we have new life. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 tells us, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John six thirty seven, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Then in John five twenty four, Christ again saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come unto condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Yet not everyone hears the message. That is to say, they may hear it. The, the vibration of the sound is making their tympanic membrane bounce around. But the message goes right in and is deleted or outright rejected before it's ever processed by the brain. John 8, 47, Christ made a comment on that. He gave the warning. He said, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you're not of God. He's speaking to the Pharisees there at the Temple Mount. They think they've got the whole picture. They know the Old Testament inside and out, but they're not hearing the message. They're not allowing it to sink in. They're so self-righteous and set in their ways that they can't fathom salvation is something we do or is, is not something that we do, but what God has already done. To bring that point home, uh, I don't know if you realize or not, but Orthodox Jews will go out of their way 
to ignore Isaiah chapter 53. Just two chapters before the one we're in. Remember I said that uh, chapter 53 is talking about the suffering of the Savior, the death of the Savior, those things in there. The last three verses of chapter 52 begin that description and all go together. But for Orthodox Jews out there, they have what's called a yearly synagogue reading schedule. You can look it up. It's on the Internet. You can see the schedule. Uh, schedule, This schedule proscribes what passages to read and when. Uh, The first reading is uh, a reading from the Torah, that is the first five books, what we call the law, followed by a reading from the prophets, or as it's uh, known to them, the uh, Haftorah. And this same schedule is followed year after year. They've been doing it for centuries. Uh, Each year, right around September, one of those scheduled readings for the Sabbath is Isaiah starts in uh, the second part of Isaiah 51, and it goes through Isaiah 52, verse 12. Remember I said verse 13 starts that passage describing the the Messiah and the suffering is going to do. So that reading stops at 52, 12. And then uh, after that, the next reading for the next uh, Sabbath goes in. They pick up at Isaiah 54 in verse 1. They skip all of 53. They don't read it in a year. I understand that, uh, you know, if you're breaking the Old Testament up into the first five books and then the prophets, there's a lot there. But in that six or seven week period uh, between those two readings, they're going through all the stuff all around this part and they just skip 53. They never get to it. They don't want to hear it. Why don't they want to hear it? This, the, again, the Pharisees didn't want to hear this because, in short, this is the part where God is saying uh, the description of that Messiah and that Savior that when you look at it and you have the New Testament and you know what happened in Christ's life, you start to recognize there's nobody else that could be talking about out there. This is talking about Christ. They don't want to hear that, so they just cut it out, and we're not going to introduce the people to it. As Christ had warned the Pharisees, we can't carve out the parts we don't want to hear or risk never being adopted into his family. Uh, In the second part of verse 3, the word uh, that we see translated there as sure when it's talking about the mercies of David is one which pictures the faithful, loving arms of a parent holding on to their infant child. You can see that uh, proud father there in the hospital was going, honey, here's our child. That's the picture that's going on. From that picture, we can see how the word can be translated as sure the way it is because he's going to hold on tight. This isn't Michael Jackson dancing his child over the the railing. Uh, I don't know what that was, but uh, most of us aren't going to do anything even close to that. In other places, the word that we see translated as sure here is translated as faithful, assurance, trust, verified, steadfast, words like that. God here is describing just how assured or sure those mercies are, the ones that are given to David. They're made available to us that uh, in that the loving father, using that loving father connotation, he says, hey, I'm going to make sure that these mercies come your way. 
Uh, just as a father wants all the best for their precious child, God wants the best uh, for us. Uh, the Hebrew word translated as mercies is also translated as goodness or kindness in other passages out there. So these are the things that God wants for his children. Uh, talking about verse, 50, or verse 3 here in uh, chapter 55, Matthew Henry notes, The sure mercies of David which are promised here are applied by the apostle to the benefits which flow to us from the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and that's detailed in Acts chapter 13, which may serve as a key to chapter 55. Not because it was intended for the comfort of the people of God that lived then, especially of the captives in Babylon or others of the dispersal uh, of Israel, but unto us was this gospel preached as well as unto them and much more clearly and fully in the New Testament. We get the rest of the story. That passage he mentioned in Acts uh, chapter 13 Verse 34 says, And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, speaking of Christ's resurrection, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Our salvation and all the blessings that come with it, they rest upon the resurrection of Christ. Without that, we're all dead. It's not of any good works that we've done, it's what Christ did. In context, God is reassuring Israel that they will, that if they will but come to the knowledge and trust in the coming Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ, that they will be faithfully adopted into God's family and will not only receive the kindness and favors that have been afforded to David, but ultimately enjoy the privileges associated with being a child of the King of Kings, Remember, this book is written directly to, a na to the nation of Judah. This is the southern kingdom of the two. It was written as the northern kingdom, we know as Israel, was being overcome by the Assyrians. And this is a hundred years before the uh, Babylonians are going to take the nation or the city of Jerusalem. So they're in a time of war. Those things are going on. But God's trying to comfort them. He goes, hey, guys, the world's kind of messed up right now. When we look around, there's some messed up stuff in the world. God wants to comfort us too. But these sure mercies of David are also made clear in David's dying words, where he record, uh, it's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. The Bible says, "Although this is David speaking, although my house be not so with God, yeah, he had some problems in his life, yet... He hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure. For this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. It's no secret that David had failures in his life, yet God made an everlasting covenant with him, one that has no end. David's failures did not keep God, or I should say David's failure to keep his end of the bargain did not keep God from keeping his. David's life is being set forth to this uh, uh, Hebrew audience as a familiar witness to both Old Testament and New Testament audiences. Uh, verse 4 of our uh, text says, Behold, I have given him, speaking of David, for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. In verse 4, Isaiah is reminding them that David who had been described as a man after God's own heart, 
was given them as a witness from God and a leader to show them God's mercies. In those failures and the <coughs> excuse me, and the blessings that came as a result, it's being uh, testified out there. First uh, Samuel uh, chapter thirteen is where we see uh, descri- uh, David being described as a man after God's own heart, and uh, Samuel is saying. But now thy kingdom shall not continue, addressing the first king, Saul. He goes on, The Lord hath sought after a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. That's the problem that's going on when Isaiah is writing this. They're not keeping the commandments of the Lord. Uh, Clearly, David had witnessed to the nation through his many psalms, He wrote a good chunk of the book of Psalms uh, where it's showing his own personal love for God and testifying of his trust in the coming Messiah. His military exploits, they made the nation grow beyond their wildest dreams. Yet as a nation, they were not living accordingly and were rapidly going into a time of judgment. As such, God tries to reason with them here in uh, the book of Isaiah. Verse 5 goes on, to reveal that the nations, uh, there would be other nations out there, like our own, the U.S. of A., that did not even exist, yet would one day look to the same God that they do and be blessed by that Messiah of God. But that only comes from seeking the Lord and turning from sin. Verse 5 of uh, this chapter says, Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee, shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. This verse also speaks of the fact that the nations of the world, the Gentile nations of the world, are included in all this, in this come to call to come. And in Christ, they too can be glorified. Notice it says that the nations will run to thee, speaking of going to the uh, nation of Israel and what they have because of God, but for the Holy of Israel, that is, for Christ. Nations are coming for the salvation that is only available through none other than Jesus Christ. The salvation of the Gentiles will be more clearly revealed in chapter 56 of Isaiah, uh, where verses 7 and 8 Tell them, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, yet will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered unto him. But before making that proclamation there in chapter 56, Isaiah makes clear that there is an urgency to this call. In verse 6, he says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Too many put off the decision to answer that call, some to the point that it's too late. Once we take that last breath and we enter into the state that we call death, we shall find ourselves eternally separated from God by a great gulf if we fail to seek him and call on him while we live. Uh, This verse reminds this war-torn audience 
that we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. The people of Afghanistan, they don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. There's Christians over there. We need them in prayer. That's kind of what these guys are going through. But uh, at that time, there's, uh, there's no fixed time to set things right. It's get it before you die is basically what he's saying. We may not have an invading army moving on our town, but a drunk or an inattentive driver can send us to eternity in the blink of an eye. Uh, this reminder was made uh, clear to us on Sunday night when Trooper Eric Foster was working a construction zone uh, and uh, he's sitting there on his patrol car with the lights and, uh, going and his vehicle got rear-ended. Thankfully, Eric is fine and uh, just had minor injuries, but that's not always the case. All you gotta do is turn on the morning news and there's gonna be stories of uh, bikes getting run over by drivers, pedestrians, cars driving into houses, whatever. Uh, it's craziness out there. We don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. Uh, if you've not made the decision to answer the call, tonight's the best time to do it. It's as easy as turning from our sins and unto God. Verse seven, uh, our final verse says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, Isaiah and the testimony that he brought before this nation. The willingness that he had to uh, come before these people and uh, for those of us that study history, we know that uh, he went through some troubled times himself uh, as he was bringing this message. It wasn't one that people wanted to hear when he's saying that we're going to be uh, taken into captivity and we're going to suffer for the uh, failings to uh, obey your word. But Lord, he was faithful to you in uh, taking that message of salvation. And uh, Lord, I pray that uh, same message would be here and that we would uh, come to you and, uh, and accept Christ for what he's done, not put it off until it's too late. Lord, glorify you and what you've done in the preparation so that uh, you may be uh, glorified and that we would see you in eternity and be with you always to enjoy the time there with you. Be with us now as we uh, continue. May all this glorify you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.